Hi, I'm Will Pomerantz, and you're listening to SpecsCast. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey there. And our special guest, Will Pomerantz. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. SpecsCast is made for space fans like you. Check out space news commentary and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. Will Pomerantz is the Vice President of Special Programs and Brand at Virgin Orbit. Will has a rich background and experience in the space industry that is way too long to list. Will joins us today remotely via Zoom, and it's a pleasure to speak with you today, Will. Thanks again for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. To get started, could you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Well, I'd say I'm both a a space fan and a space professional. Um, uh, I've been uh, in love with this industry really from the moment I started in it um, as an undergraduate student. Uh, when I joined uh, a student organization called SEDS, the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. And that was something that really opened up my eyes about uh, what the space industry actually is. And it took it from being a sort of uh, neat but two-dimensional poster on the wall uh, of uh, you know things that were cool to look at and fun to think about, but I didn't think about them very deeply, um, into something that's been an abiding passion for, for my entire career. As I realized the depth of how... Um, thoroughly and beneficially space impacts the lives of, I believe, all 7 billion people all around the planet. And then also, as I realize um, the diversity of the jobs that exist within the space industry, it's not just astronaut and mission controller. There's lots of other fields as well. That inspired me. Um, and then the lack of diversity of the people filling those jobs, that pissed me off. Um, and so um, I sort of tried to dedicate my career to uh, both helping um, increase the good things and decrease the sucky things about the aerospace industry by um, trying to, um, through my day job at Virgin Orbit and my past day jobs at Virgin Galactic and XPRIZE Foundation, uh, doing things there to try and make the cost of space missions much lower, which in turn hopefully will drive the frequency and the accessibility way up. And then through a lot of the projects I do outside of work, whether that's SEDS or the Brooke Owens Fellowship or whatever else, trying to... um, really help the industry both do a better job of identifying the talented people of diverse backgrounds that have always wanted to work in the industry, and then actually getting them into the industry and keeping them here by, uh, by uh, helping train them, helping recognize them, promote them, and do all the other things that we've historically done a great job for some parts of society, but not as much, not as much for others. Yeah, excellent. Um, so as far as your personal interest in space, are you drawn to the technical side of like all the hard, difficult engineering problems? Or are you more drawn toward the abstract um, way that space exploration opens up uh, the progress of humanity um, and yeah. moves forward to the human race? All of the above, and it's, it's also changed over time. So I, I think I came to space just as a, a miscellaneous science nerd. Um, you know, I grew up both loving science fiction and science fact. And uh, when I started at, at college as an undergrad, um, I didn't know what major I wanted to do, but I knew it was some science. And so I was interested in all of them. Um, I, I, re- I really thought it would probably be chemistry, but I liked physics too. And I'd never taken a class in astronomy or astrophysics, but that sounded pretty neat. And I worked in a biology lab. And so I kind of liked all of them. Um, and space was just one among many that sounded really intriguing. 
um, as I learn more and more about it, um, and as I learn, you know, how uh, how untapped a field of knowledge it, it certainly was back then, and I think to a large extent still is right now, uh, you know, scientists are always excited, I think, by frontiers, um, because that they offer plentiful possibilities for, for discovery. Uh, and so that's really what initially hooked me in, coupled with the idea that, oh, maybe I could go to space myself someday, and that sure would be fun. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I started with wanting to go to space for any lofty uh, philanthropic reason. It was just about, oh, that looks like fun. Um, but as uh, as time has gone on, as I've been more involved in the industry, as I've learned more, yeah, I've become very much a true believer in uh, the impact space has on the community, whether that's economic um, whether it's uh, in terms of security, whether that's in terms of both fundamental and applied sciences, but also in terms of sort of its social impact in the tools that space has to uh, improve collaboration between nations, as we've seen with the International Space Station Project and, um, you know, Apollo Soyuz and other things like that, even earlier in our history uh, up, up through today, um, but also in terms of how we uh, inspire and engage um people of, of just about every background. You know, in, in my uh, in my profession, I've had the occasion to travel pretty literally around the world and talk to all kinds of audiences, both within the industry and outside of the industry um, about space stuff. And what I found is that an interest in space is pretty close to universal. Um, not everyone has it, but every demographic has it. It's not something that needs to be tied to your, your passport um, or the shape of your body or anything else. Uh, I think just about everyone gets inspired by one part or another of space. And it's always occurred to me that space has this unique power to be basically a gateway drug into all the STEM industries because yeah. young, young kids can understand space at an age where they simply can't understand genetics or computer science or like a lot of these other fields that are just as cool and just as important and, and just as rewarding, uh, but require a, a bigger fundamental uh, basis of knowledge than it does to look at a picture of Saturn and recognize that that's different and that's cool and I want to know more. Or to look at a video of an astronaut drinking water in zero gravity and say, wow, that is awesome. Tell me more. Uh, it, it's a great hook that requires you know no language skills and it requires no math skills at the very, very start, but quickly pulls you into mastering a lot of the, a lot of those skills, which I think is really exciting. So for our conversation today, uh, first, I'd like to talk about your work on the technical side of the industry and, you know, where, where it's been and where it's going. And then um, toward the next half of the conversation, I'd really like to explore your involvement in that social impact. So, you know, getting people involved in space and uh, things like the Brooke Owens Fellowship, which you helped create. So, um, First, let's go back to the technical side and talk about that. TJ? Yes. So your title is VP of Special Projects at Virgin Orbit. That's pretty broad. Uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like at Virgin Orbit? Yeah, I love my title because it's, uh, it is so broad as to be totally meaningless, <laughs> which, which lets me do a lot of cool things uh, and allows me to change up what I do, not necessarily day-to-day, -day, but definitely month-to-month -month and certainly year-to-year. -year. Um, I've gotten to do a, a, a lot of different things. Um, I joined uh, the Virgin Group uh, at what's now my sister company, Virgin Galactic, uh, about nine, nine and a half years ago now with that same title. And I took on that title because um, I was joining uh, in, in sort of early wave of employees. I was employee number 40 or some, something like that. I don't remember the exact number. So still a, a pretty small company that was starting to grow pretty quickly. Uh, and even though it had been around on paper and as a small but awesome um, marketing and sales organization for a long time, was really starting to step up as an aerospace company uh, with a presence here in the United States. 
Um, and it was in that phase that I think all early stage startups go through where basically every day you're turning over a new rock and you're either going to find a terrible threat or a wonderful opportunity that you had no idea existed last night. And you don't need to master, but you need to have a pretty good handle on what the heck it is and whether or not it's important, you know, within a matter of a couple hours to a couple of days when either your investors are going to call to check in or when your window to uh, respond to uh, some kind of a, a procurement or to hire a person or whatever else, you know, the life moves very, very quickly. And so uh, George Whitesides, uh, my friend and mentor and boss over there, uh, was looking for someone to come in and be um, a little bit of a, a jack of all trades, even if that came at the expense of being a master of none, and to be unafraid of being thrown at a different problem every, every, every week of the month or every month of the year, certainly. Uh, and so that, that's what I got to do uh, there. My job would be everything from doing a little bit of technical program management, although that's not my strongest suit, and there's others who are far better at it than I, to doing some sales, to doing some outreach, to doing some media relations, investor relations, internal culture setting, um, helping uh, you know define technical requirements for, for new products, uh, lots, lots of different things like that, really helping out wherever help was needed. Uh, and then in between fighting fires and, uh, and chasing after quick turnaround opportunities that cropped up, my other job was to help Virgin uh, figure out other things that it could do in space. So Virgin already had this fantastic team at Virgin Galactic and the spaceship company that was working on what I still believe is a really important and beautiful project of making a commercial space line to allow all kinds of people uh, the chance to personally fly into space. Um, we knew that in the pursuit of that, we were going to hire a lot of people that are much smarter than I am. And we were going to, you know, staff up uh, some great facilities. We were going to build some great manufacturing capabilities. We were to develop great hardware and software and intellectual property. Um, and anytime you're going to pool together that much talent and that many capabilities and frankly, spend that much money on it, you should probably have one, more than one product for more than one audience. It doesn't matter how excited you are about that one product or that one audience if you've got all your eggs in one basket, there's a lot of risk that comes comes along with that. And so we had this fantastic product primarily around space tourism. And we said, well, what, what else can we do with the same sort of skill set? And there was a big list of ideas that I did not author. It was there well before I got there for other things that we might do. Uh, and what I got asked to do was to kind of go through that list because it was, it was almost literally bullet points on a napkin. It was to go through that list with some Kind of academic rigor and say, okay, of these ideas, which are good ideas and which aren't so good ideas, which should we do now versus what need to come a little further down the road? What do we do in-house versus what do we hire someone else or partner with someone else or, or, or whatever else? And some of those things were uh, honestly pretty easy, and I, I certainly don't deserve any credit for them. If, if there's credit to go around, it goes to my colleagues. That was things like, okay, how do you take the exact same vehicle that we built for space tourism and just use it for space research. So same pilots, same trajectories, same facilities. It's just the nature of what's in the back of the vehicle changes. Either it's professional astronauts instead of tourists, or maybe it's not even people at all. It's just experiments. And that does take a little bit of work because you got to figure out, okay, well, which of those is it? Is it, is it professional astronauts or university professors or students, or is it just uh, uncrewed experiments, intended experiments, how do you mix those? Do you mix those? What's the price point? Who can pay for this? Do they only want to buy it at certain times in the academic school year or do they only want to buy it at certain times in the fiscal year? Like you got to figure out pricing strategy, all those kinds of things. So I had to work with some of my colleagues to, to craft that. But that was a pretty easy answer and we were able to roll that out pretty quickly. Others of the ideas on there were 
much bigger, much harder. We knew we were going to take a lot more money, a lot more time, and that they might be terrible ideas or they might be genius ideas. One of the ideas on that list, which again, I didn't write, it was there way before I got there, was this concept that perhaps Virgin should get involved in the business of small satellite launch. Uh, and so I was asked to work with a bunch of really smart colleagues to study both the the question of can we do that and the question of should we do that? So do we think we have the engineering and operations and manufacturing know-how to develop uh, a, a, some kind of a launch service? And then if we did, do we think anyone would use it? Um, both in the sense of will it make any money because that would be nice and in the sense of does it actually make our industry better or does it make our, our world any better? Um, and I, I, I have freely admitted on the record many times before, um, going into the study, I was pretty sure I knew the answer to both of those questions already. I was pretty sure the answer is yes, we can. It might cost a good amount of money, but other people have done it and I think we can do it. Uh, and I was equally sure that the answer was probably no, we shouldn't um, because uh, I had some familiarity with the economics of launch vehicles and those aren't necessarily uh, the greatest <laughs> set of economics of any industry in the world. Um, and I also knew that if launch vehicles in general had sort of uh, iffy financial prospects, if we were talking about building a launch vehicle specifically for small satellites, well, no one was building small satellites at the time. And the very few exceptions to that rule didn't have any money. And so building a, a, a new entrant in an, era, in an industry that typically hasn't made huge amounts of money for a customer base that has no money didn't seem like a great uh, combination. But you know, anytime you're asked to do a study, whether you come from a scientific background like I do or an engineering background like some of y'all or, or, or whatever else, you do best, your best to put aside your prior assumptions and biases and go and actually look at the data. So uh, with the help of, of many very bright colleagues, uh, Winton did that and kind of confirmed relatively quickly, yes, we think we can. Here's about what it might cost and about how long it might take and some technical routes we might go. But but yes, they're this is not an undoable thing. It's a possible thing. And then the surprising result to me was uh, how, how thoroughly I became convinced that, oh, we absolutely should. Um, and that happened because I was able uh, to connect with this incredible uh, and, and quickly growing community of, of innovators who were building small satellites and discovered not only you know, how much the miniaturization of technology that has impacted every other industry, how much that had positively benefited the manufacturing of satellites, but how that was coupled with these other trends where we were seeing because the satellites had gotten so much smaller and you could build them from much lower cost components. Well, that had brought the price way down because the price had come way down. Now you had investors and customers that had been priced out that were coming in. Included in that, you were having students who were building satellites as students. And then what happened was, as they were graduating, they were looking at the traditional satellite manufacturing world and saying, okay, if I go the traditional route, I'll get to build two or three satellites in my career. Well, I built two satellites in my academic career, and that only lasted four years. So I, I don't really want to build three satellites over the course of my entire career. I don't want to go build the big ones. I want to build these tiny ones, and I want to build them two or three a week. That makes a lot more sense. And so we saw a huge influx of talent, particularly of young, not only, but particularly of young and early career talent that flooded into small sets with all the enthusiasm and naivete and energy that, uh, that youth implies and, and the, the totally orthogonal ideas about what you could do and how you could do it. So I just saw this hugely exciting pool uh, of, uh, of folks who were clamoring to use small satellites. And I saw that the thing that was holding them back was launch. Um, and critically, it was holding them back in a kind of special way where they had uh, some initial opportunities in launch that were exciting enough to get them 
uh, off the ground, no pun intended. So they could take their first satellite or their first couple of satellites and they could do what's called piggybacking or hitchhiking, where they take a bigger rocket that's been bought by a bigger satellite and they say, hey, can I squeeze my, may I please squeeze my little tiny satellite into the, into the trunk of your car effectively? That's a great way to get to space very cheaply, sometimes even for free, but what it's not is convenient. Uh, and so that meant that there was enough launch capacity out there to uh, allow for um, some Darwinian evolution of these small satellite um, entities and to allow, you know, real world results to show which of these ideas were good ideas and which were bad ideas because they could launch their first satellite or the first couple of satellites. But it required a new and different kind of provider in order for the small satellites to actually fulfill their potential, um, both economically and scientifically, socially, however else you look at it. So I said, okay, that's an opportunity for us to come in to have a little bit of a pre-vetted customer community to an extent, and then to enable those customers to actually achieve their goals in the world and to make an economic impact or make a peacekeeping impact or make a scientific impact. Um, They need us and no one else is doing it. So by God, let's go and do it. Um, So was able to work with George Whitesides and um, Sir Richard Branson and the awesome team at the Virgin Group to uh, bring in a little bit of money and a lot of talent uh, to set up a company uh, now called Virgin Orbit um, that was dedicated to doing exactly that. Um, And I have uh, had the great fortune of, I technically count as employee number one at Virgin Orbit, which still seems weird to me all these years later. And over the years, I've done everything from those initial feasibility studies and, and helping with some of our early investor relations to um, I helped recruit in and hire our, uh, our chief engineer, who's someone I'd, I'd known from a previous life, to uh, you know, leading a tiny bit of technical programs, but to, yeah, running the brand and, and uh, doing the Twitter feed in the early days and you know, whatever else the team needed to remove distractions from the, uh, from the smart folks out on the shop floor and to get customers and, and future employees and everyone else excited about this stuff. Yeah, so that said... Um... How are things, this is kind of a compound question since you've, you know, you've came from the X prize, which was pushing that, uh, that boundary. And then now Virgin Orbit, um, you explained the origin story and now you're at the cusp of actually bringing that to market. So, um, how are things different now on the industry sense, um, but from 10 to 20 years ago and then, uh, additionally, like what milestone are you most excited for? Sure. Uh, I, yeah, I would say massive changes. You know, um, I, I got interested in commercial space um, back in the early 2000s when there really wasn't much of such a thing. Um, yeah, obviously, there are important commercial companies um, that are involved in space and always have been, but most of them are the big traditional prime contractors where they're a commercial company, but almost all, if not all, their business comes from the government. So I, I sort of consider them in a different camp. The sort of truly commercial or entrepreneurial providers um, yeah, I, I just happened to meet in early in my career, actually mainly when I was still a student, some wild-eyed maverick entrepreneurs that wanted to, to do stuff in space. And that just sort of opened my mind to the possibilities of what could be done if you had an effective entrepreneurial community within the space industry. Um, but at the time, it was, it, was, it was the fringe. It was the lunatic fringe. I mean, pretty literally. These were, these were people... Uh, who were mavericks, a lot of them were brilliant, not all of them, but a lot of them were brilliant, but they were openly laughed at by the rest of the industry. Um, And whether they were talking about, you know, putting robots on the moon or flying small, uh, small reusable vehicles suborbitally or building space hotels or whatever else, everyone in industry, everyone in academia, everyone in government thought these people were lunatics. 
and that they were uh, foolhardy, maybe to the point of being dangerous, and that they had absolutely no chance of success. Uh, and I will never forget going to one of the big traditional um, aerospace conferences back in, I can't remember if it was 2003 or, or early 2004, because right? I don't remember what season it was, but somewhere around then. Uh, and they had sort of one small panel off in a in a dusty conference, you know, banquet hall somewhere on the last day of the conference when everyone important is left. They had one called uh, Commercial Space. And I, I remember I got there early because I was so excited and wanted to sit in the front row. And I literally hear people laughing as they walk in and saying, are you here for the freak show? I mean, they, they would literally say those words. That's, that's how people thought of it. And meanwhile, fast forward a couple months and you got Spaceship One flying to space with Mike Melville at the controls. And you have the first ever privately built and operated human spaceflight program. And that was a shot across the bow of, of a lot of people in industry. But it was also just a huge wake up call for a lot of people that said, even the people who didn't think that that particular mission was the best mission or that it was going to, that it was more than a stunt, even for some of the skeptics, and there's certainly still some of the skeptics, they all of a sudden, oh my God, I thought that was a mission that couldn't possibly be done for less than a billion dollars. And someone just did it to win a $10 million prize. And, and they did it safely. They brought the person back. They flew it again. They flew it again. Everybody noticed, holy cow, this is a whole new world. Uh, and so we started to see a change then. And then that's that's picked up since, you know, obviously the major thing that's happened since then is SpaceX. And um, uh, I, I've had the, I've never worked at SpaceX, but Elon was on the board of, of XPRIZE. So I had a chance to follow along with the SpaceX journey almost literally from day one. And, and again, people laughed at him and laughed at him and said it was dangerous and said he was a fool and said they were going to kill people and said that they would quickly learn the error of their ways. And it was this exercise in like continually moving goalposts where they said, well, they'll never even get to the launch pad. Okay. They got to the launch pad, but they'll never succeed. Okay. They got to orbit, but they'll never make it to station. Okay. They got to station, but then like <laughs> it's kept going right up until, uh, right up until, you know, uh, crew dragon flight and the first flight of the commercial crew program uh, only a few weeks ago now. Uh, so now what we see is, I think everyone in the industry has admitted commercial space is here to stay. It's, uh, it's important. It's dynamic. There will be tons of failures within the industry, uh, probably of entire verticals, not just of individual companies. Um, but this is a healthy thing. It's bringing a lot of attention and, uh, and product and investment and talent um, into our industry that we needed. Um, and it has some important strengths that are not necessarily better than, they're just different from those of traditional government providers um, and of the, the major primes. You know, those companies are good at different things than the little tiny companies. So it's, it's a, I find it's a really exciting um, time in the industry. I do speak to students a lot and I, I tell them all, oh, I'm really jealous. Uh, this is because it's such a fun time to enter into the industry. Um, there is a lot of risk, but there's a lot of choice and there's a lot of specialization and you can go and find a fit that works for you individually rather than what works for you know the largest number of people. You better make that make that work for you. Uh, and in terms of the next milestones, you know, I, I think uh, in the industry wide, we, we just had a big one again with crew demo. Uh, I'm really hopeful that we're not too long away from um, private things landing on the moon uh, from a project that I used to work on, the Google Lunar X Prize. And we got pretty close with Space IL uh, a year or two ago. They touched the moon, not at the speed they wanted to, but uh, even that's pretty impressive. So, so that's coming. And then certainly on the Virgin Orbit side, you know, um, I'm talking to you not too long after our first launch demo, uh, which was a huge step forward, not quite as huge as we would have liked, but a huge step forward. And we're gearing up to take our next one not too long from now. Uh, so what I'm most excited about is getting out of the test phase and into the operations phase. Because um, uh, testing is fun, 
uh, and challenging and we grow a lot, but we don't change the world until we're in operations. And, uh, and that's coming really, really soon. So, well, a big part of your career has been mentoring younger students and young professionals. You've been on the chair, you've been the chair of the board for advisors of SEDS and you've co-founded the Brooke Owens Fellowship. Tell us a bit about what motivates you to invest so much time in mentoring younger students and professionals. Well, a lot of it comes from my own personal experience. So uh, I mentioned um, very early in the call, you know, uh, when I was an undergraduate, I joined uh, a student organization called SEDS, the Students for the Exploration of Development of Space. And, and I can literally trace my entire career to going to my first SEDS meeting. Um, I, I, there's no way I would have worked in the space industry if I hadn't popped into that meeting kind of by, by lucky coincidence. Um, and then again and again throughout my four years being involved in that organization as an undergrad, it just sort of exposed me to, it's how I heard about the graduate school I went to, it's how I heard about the major internships I got, it's how I met future bosses and mentors and things like that. Um, and so as I, uh, as I got a little bit older and I entered into the industry, it, it became clear to me how these really tiny nudges and these really op- tiny opportunities in the life of a student just make these massive outsized changes. And that, that, that kind of leverage is just extraordinary. Um, I realized as I, was, uh, as I was an alum who stayed involved with SEDS, I could literally have a five minute phone call with a student. And it's not like I'm some great genius or anything, but I, I just know the names of people and I know their email addresses. And, and I know, you know, I've been exposed to concepts that you haven't been exposed to. And if I can do something as simple as suggesting the name of a book that you check out of the library or a website that you read or a podcast that you listen to, that could totally change a career. And it cost me nothing. It cost me literally no money and almost no time and almost no thought. So why not do that? Why not do that a lot, right? Why not make these little tiny adjustments here and there? And, 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 and sure enough, what I've gotten to see is, you know, a lot of those folks that I did, I had, I had one phone call with them when they were a junior and undergrad and they, they said, can I buy you a coffee? And I said, I don't drink coffee, but well, let's, let's talk for 15 minutes. And, and then I hear from them 10 years later and they're saying, you know, I've started a startup. Do you want to be on, on my board of advisors or can you introduce me to someone? And, and that, that's, that's just really gratifying. So I've always really enjoyed giving back. It's also fun. It's not only service. It's fun for me. Um, I like going to, I like speaking to young people. I like going to said, uh, said space vision conference because y'all's enthusiasm is great. And um, even though I am, um, uh, I, I, I say this all the time, I have the personality of a golden retriever. That's, I, I sort of like, like everything. But even I, you know, when you've been in the industry a while, it loses some of its magic because you just see it every day. And it's really nice to see it through the eyes of someone who, who hasn't had that happen yet, who's, you know, really excited to hear an astronaut talk. I'm like, oh my goodness, another astronaut. And I'm like, oh no, actually astronauts are awesome. Like I've, I'd forgotten that because I've, I've been so spoiled. Um, so so that's, that's been really wonderful. And that really drove my involvement in SEDS. Uh, and then, you know, the other big one of those uh, opportunities for me has been uh, a project uh, that I co-founded a couple of years ago called the Brooke Owens Fellowship. Um, and this is something that, uh, that I helped start up along with two really remarkable women, uh, one named Lori Garver, who was the deputy administrator at NASA for many years you know, the number two person in the whole agency, in addition to a ton of other really interesting jobs. Uh, the other is a woman named Cassie Lee, who at the time was running all of space for Paul Allen, and now is a senior exec at, at Lockheed Martin. Um, the three of us actually weren't all that close with each other. We knew each other and liked each other, but weren't all that close. Uh, but we all had a, a friend in common named Brooke Owens. Um, Brooke, when Brooke passed away, uh, at a, a tragically young age, just a, a few weeks shy of her 36th birthday, um, we were all sort of in grief and, and, uh, in shock, even though we, we shouldn't have been, she'd been sick for a long time. Um, and uh, it was Lori who sent out an email to a lot of people in the aerospace industry saying, 
I can't believe Brooke's gone. Uh, I need to do something in her honor. Um, and I got a couple ideas, who wants in? And uh, a bunch of people, almost everyone wrote back and said, that sounds wonderful. You know, whatever you decide to do, please let me know and I'll support it. Uh, Cassie and I uh, were, were some of the ones who wrote back and said, yeah, I want in, like, I want to help. Uh, I've got ideas and I want to improve your ideas and let's, let's work together. And, and so we found that uh, we all had some common interests that also aligned pretty well with Brooks' interests, probably why we were all friends. And a big one of those was uh, about getting more uh, women uh, into the aerospace industry. The gender numbers in aerospace are still pathetic. Um, depending on what kind of study you look at, it's something like 14 to 20% of the industry are women, uh, when I think every sort of reasonable statistic suggests that should be about 50. So that's way, 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 way under. Um, and early in my career, I had made the, the foolish and naive assumption that this was just a time problem. And it's, oh, well, that's a problem that started in the 60s and it just takes a while because you don't have the role models and we still have a lot of those retirees around and they're 100% male. And, and so if we just wait, the problem will fix itself. And as I actually looked at the data and opened my eyes and started paying attention, I realized, uh-uh, that, that is not what's happening here. Maybe that's happening a little bit, but really, 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 really slowly. And, not, and even that small change isn't just happening naturally, it's happening because some hardworking people at universities and in student organizations and things like that are, are, are putting in the work to make it happen. Um, so we said, well, we got to fix that. Um, and I do not believe, I categorically, categorically reject this, this bizarre and offensive philosophy that some people have that the problem is just that women aren't interested in space. I think that's total bullshit. I hope you don't mind my swearing. Uh, and I've just seen so many data points that that, uh, that that is clearly false, clearly false. What is happening is that we are not creating a workplace or an academic place that is welcoming of these people. We are, uh, we are pushing them out. We are undervaluing their talents. Um, we are not recognizing how to select them as candidates. When they come in the industry, we're not rewarding them in the same way. We're not promoting them the same way. We're not training them the same. We're not doing anything in the same way. And that's ridiculous. And shame on us. It's a huge loss, not only for those individuals, but for our community. Um, this is a business that's really hard. We need a lot of brain power. And if we're excluding half the brain power, we just got 50% dumber because of our own decision. Um, so, uh, so the three of us teamed up to create this program. We made it up on the fly. Uh, in all honesty, we invented most of the program over a period of about 24 to 48 hours because we wanted to have a pretty good idea of what the program would be um, in time for Brooke's memorial service so that we could talk to her family about it and make sure that they were on board with it. Um, and ended up um, in that quick bit of effort because of the, the uh, talent and experience and creativity of, of my coworker, my co-founders and a bunch of other superstar mentors and volunteers. And then now really of the students themselves that we got in our first class and, and the ones that have followed on. We built this incredible family and program, um, won a bunch of awards and, and gotten a lot of uh, recognition. But to me, the best metric for success in this program, which to summarize very, very briefly is uh, sort of an internship and mentorship program where we, uh, where we find it's now not only women, it's all underrepresented genders, genders so uh, trans and non-binary people as well. Uh, we have, we think, a pretty unique um, and bias-free way to identify talent uh, that might have been overlooked elsewhere. Uh, we, through a very competitive process, um, hook them up with meaningful and paid jobs at the leading aerospace companies and nonprofits in the United States. Uh, we give them a, a living wage, an awesome and challenging job. 
a good boss, a good project to work on. We give them an executive level mentor, and then we bring them all together for a summit. Actually, we're in the middle of our summit right now, which is one reason why uh, my time is so tight today. We're doing a virtual summit this year, obviously, because of COVID. Um, and, and then a couple other things that are that are also, also important. Um, what we're finding now is uh, we literally have these women who have gone through our program who, uh, you know, before they'd gotten into our program, they were applying to every job in the industry and not even getting interviewed. Uh, and now they are beaten off job job offers that are coming in all, all the time. Like they, they just have every company in the world wants to employ them. They're going on and winning major awards. They're running big projects at work. They're getting scholarships. They're getting into the best graduate schools in the country. Like I said, that's not because of us. That's because of them. The talent was always there. Um, it just required someone to look for it in the right way and then to enable it in the right way. And it's been uh, an incredibly fulfilling uh, uh, project to work on. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Uh, Ferris, I think you have one more question. Well, I guess the final thing, closing question is, what piece of advice would you give to other professionals in the industry or um, uh, in terms of how they can contribute to mentoring students or other young professionals? Yeah, um, I think my main, it's a great question. My main advice is, is just do it. It's not that hard. It's pretty easy to find a student who wants to be mentored. They all want to be mentored. Some of them don't realize, don't really know what mentoring means, and a lot of them are shy or they, they don't want to um, they don't want to impose um, on professional people. But I can guarantee, you know, whatever your whatever your capacity is, if you work in the aerospace industry, wherever you live geographically, whatever part of your career in, I am gonna bet that there is some kid out there who would love to buy you a coffee and pick your brain and talk to you every once in a while, um, and usually doesn't take anything more than you know, looking on the, you know, just Googling around the website for your local community college or university, find your local SEDS chapter. There's something like 90 SEDS chapters that are in operation. Find an AIAA chapter, find a SWE chapter, find a National Society of Black Engineers chapter, whatever is the particular flavor of student that you think you could either help the most or you enjoy working with the most. Um, they're not that hard to find. Um, if you want to mentor people, go to the annual Space Vision Conference We'll probably be virtual this year because of COVID-19, but virtually attend that or go in person the next time. Uh, you'll find an, uh, an audience of incredible students there who will be enthusiastic and passionate and will ask you both really easy questions and really hard questions. And those are both kind of fun to deal with. And just be, be, be a little bit generous with your time. Um, recognize that uh, no matter how busy you are, you can make 15 minutes. It's everybody can do it, right? If, if, uh, if uh, people who run governments and companies and hospitals and whatever else. If they can do it, you can do it too. Um, little, little bites. It doesn't have to be days at a time in a row. It's fine, find a little bite here and there. And, uh, and uh, lastly, you know, share, uh, share your mistakes as well as your successes. Don't let people uh, repeat your failures. And uh, I would say if my own career is any history, I think most people, you know, we now view our failures in a totally new context. Um, when, when you have a decade or so of, of perspective on them, you say, Ooh, that could have been much worse if not for XYZ or, oh boy, I'm really glad I failed in this capacity because it prevented me from failing in this capacity later on or exposed me to this whole new kind of thing. And it's hard sometimes for students to see that, right? Students uh, who, uh, for all their wonderful things, they're just not that old usually. There are some, but it, you know, usually usually they're pretty young and they don't, they don't they, they're in the moment. They live in the moment, um, uh, uh, which is a wonderful strength, but sometimes can be a drawback because they can get so set back by a little failure or by one bad grade, you know, I still talk to people, I get, I'll get back on my gender soapbox again. I still talk to people of all genders, but particularly of the underrepresented genders who have decided not to go in space into any STEM field 
because you know one sixth grade teacher told them they were bad at math. And that's, you know, from the perspective of someone who's about to turn 40, that is preposterous. That who cares what one sixth grade teacher said, right? Chances are that was a bad sixth grade teacher. Or maybe you were bad at math when you were in sixth grade, which says nothing about how good you were in seventh grade, right? But students don't always see that. They take it, they take in that bad advice, they internalize it. They don't even sign up for their next math class. They decide they hate math. They decide they don't want to be friends with anyone who likes math. And bam, their whole career is changed by that. Um, I think we as folks with a little bit more experience have the opportunity, and I would say it's even more than an opportunity, it's probably a, a calling or a, a requirement to go and say, hey, you know, get back up, you try it again. That's that's fine. I, I, I got C's at some point. I got a lot of A's, but I got some C's. It happened. And uh, nobody cares anymore. Nobody asked me my GPA ever. Doesn't, doesn't happen. It'll happen to you someday as well. Um, so get back up and try it again. I hope that helps. Definitely. Thank you so much, Will, for your time. Yeah, I think a lot of these things that you've talked about will resonate with our listeners, whether they're students or uh, professionals in the space industry. And uh, it's it's great to hear uh, the origin story of Virgin Orbit and uh, moving forward into the future, your work with bringing underrepresented people toward the industry and making it better for the human race. Thanks, y'all. Have a great day. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpexCast. To get involved as a student or a mentor for the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, you can visit seds.org. To learn more about the Brooke Owens Fellowship, visit brookeowensfellowship.org. Another way you can help make a difference is by donating to Campaign Zero or Black Girls Code and sending us evidence of your donation. Here at SpexCast, we are matching up to a total of $300 of donations to either of those organizations. Also keep an eye out in the news for Launcher One, Virgin Orbit's first small satellite launch vehicle. We expect Launcher One to make its first operational flight later this year. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe to get future episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can check out a huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts including interviews with key people in the space industry, like Will Pomerantz, also in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry, all on our website, blog.spexcast.com. Let us know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service, or reach out to us directly via Twitter at SpexCast, or by sending an email to spexcast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott.